Welcome. My name is Susan Brink, and you are listening to the Jazz Journalist Association podcast, The Buzz. With me is Jason Miles. He is a producer. He plays keyboards. He wins Grammys. And he has a book out called The Extraordinary Journey of Jason Miles, a musical biography with a foreword by Marcus Miller. Welcome, Jason. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. What made you decide to write this book? You know, you get to a place in life. You really do. And you have all these people. Yes, well, I wrote my memoirs, you know, like, you know, how old are you? I'm 40. At 40, I was just really starting to see stuff going down, you know, because I had done all the sessions for 15 years and seen everything. And now the next spot. So there was always. But then you find a spot where you're saying this adventure has gone on for a long time now. And I got some stuff I could really talk about and say to reflect on my life. And to bring people to a place that is not a place that everybody was privileged to be in. They were not privileged to sit in the studio for, for four months with Luther Vandross, with just me and Marcus and the engineer and Luther and once around that Adderley, you know, making albums and seeing really what is going on in there. Why is this stuff platinum? Best examples were Tutu and Amandala and those albums, you know what I mean? These are classic, legendary albums. What happened? How did that happen? You hear stories and everything like that. And I hear the stories. I start laughing. Where are you getting this stuff from, man? None of that stuff happened when I was there. And I was there the whole time. So who's inventing this stuff? And I said, it's time maybe somebody told the truth about what some of these stories are. It's time that, that people saw, you know, what I am and where I came from that may not know about all of that. That may not know about all the sessions and all the work and how one progressed from doing that into then morphing into a producer into then morphing into a producer-composer, which I've always been doing since I started, morphing into that, then morphing into the thing, and then seeing the business change again, and then having to go and restructure everything and have the journey, and you'll be able to follow the journey. And that's just what I try to do. And there's a lot more that hopefully will come again when I do another one. But this one got off to, a, to the start of like showing people at least what I was about, where it was, and why it has been an extraordinary journey. Who are some of the people you've worked with over the years that are covered in this book? Uh, well, well, of course, there's an extensive relationship with Marcus Miller, who I worked with for 10 years, basically. We were there during the golden time. We were there during, like, you know, uh, if you were a producer and a serious producer, a producer who was a contemporary producer, you needed to have a synth guy with you. Because if you don't, you were going to be lagging behind. And you needed a good one with you because all the records could sound the same, using the same stuff. What was going to happen? We have somebody like Marcus. He was a rare person who was a virtuoso musician at such a young age and then morphed into writing great stuff. And, you know, he had, had the experience. And when we hooked up together, all of a sudden, Zoom, we became like ninjas in the studio. You know, we go in there search and destroy men on these records. The artist would just sit there and goes, oh, my gosh, you guys are oh, so happy. Thank you. You know, because we were coming from a very fresh and very contemporary place at the cutting edge of the new music and the new sounds and the new instruments. So all those records that I made during back then with, with Luther Vandross, I did eight of them, three with Miles, you know, Al Jarreau. That would be Miles and, Davis? Yeah, Miles Davis, yes. Three with Miles Davis, a two, 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 and music from Siesta and a mandala. He became a great friend to me, a great friend, a great mentor, totally different than what you would ever think that Miles was like. You know, Luther, who just, I learned so much in the studio from him, man. Watching him and Marcus together was a work of art. I got to produce, learned about producing vocals, seeing all this, just by sitting there at the front row seat. And then, you know, Tommy LaPuma and working with Tommy and, you know, all this other stuff. David Sanborn's albums, I did, I did three with, I did four with David. 
uh, Ruben Blades and Al Jarreau and Anita Baker and tons of jing- jingles and all this stuff. Creating myself to understand what it was like in the studio to make a real album about how to go and, and craft music that would be around for a long time. So after that, I was able to Shaka Khan, work with Shaka, Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson. I did all these albums with these people. And so, you know, after that, well, what did I get? I got a very nice Rolodex with the best musicians and the best artists. But when I was thinking about a project and something came that I was able to do, which my friend gave me the opportunity to do a very, very high-end record in 1993 that took me two years to make it, actually, for the UN 50th anniversary of Spoke People. And it was like all these different themes about people in this narration and video that was on the Disney Channel and everything back then. And so I got to call Shaka Khan and Yvonne Linz and Heavy D, Heavy D, Al Jarreau, Brenda Russell, you know, Vanessa Williams, all these people that I had worked with. I said, oh, Jason, let's go, man. You know, then I got to show them what I could do. They're like, yeah, I learned my lessons. I know how to do this. I don't waste time. I'm a professional. And so you take that and you keep on hopefully building on it. But I was an independent thinker and still was not in the mainstream of like making smooth jazz albums or something like that. I mean, I made contemporary jazz and and, and, and pop, but not like that kind of like where they just hijacked the whole scene, the smooth jazz station. They hijacked the whole scene and took away your chance to listen to Pat Metheny or Weather Report or and at that point, even Bob James and all these bands that we grew up with through the 80s, because now all of a sudden it was like R&B music taken from like Cool and the Gang. <laughs> I love Cool and the Gang, don't get me wrong, but I mean, they're not jazz. But they're jazz guys, but they're not playing jazz. And Ladies Night is not a jazz tune, you know what I mean, okay? Correct. So you kind of see where I built everything off of. You know, Roberta Flack, Roberta was a great friend to me. Great talent, yes. So it became time to put your thoughts and your memories together? Yes, and I had to go, and I sat and I thought, how could I do this? What could I do? Well, I didn't want to spend 100 pages talking about my, my chaotic, crazy Jewish life in Brooklyn. So I just put it into a chapter to kind of give people a little flavor of what was going on because of how lucky I was growing up in many ways, being in the middle of the greatest music scene in, in the world in New York with you know the jazz and the rock bands. We, I thought jazz, rock, this. I could go down the block and sneak into the Bamboo Lounge and hear Groove Holmes. Then the next week, I'd go to the Cafe of Go-Go and hear Paul Butterfield. And then I'd go to the Fillmore East and see The Dead and Hendrix and, you know, all these great people. And that was an education. Then I went to the Catskill Mountains in the summer and played in all, played in all the hotels there and really grew up understanding and hung around a lot of musicians. So I wanted to take that and give that to people and show them that there was a beginning. And once I did that, I thought that, okay, now, and Scott Yana, one of the things that he wrote about in, in one of his reviews, the play, Jason, Jason took out 25 years of his life and just jumped over to Jamaica Boys. <laughs> well, I understand that, but I don't know whether you wanted to stay with me during, the, during 10 years of incredible struggle, mm-hmm. because to get to where I was at was not an easy place as far as not only trying to go and you know, get gigs and work with try to create myself as like a master of my craft. You think you can walk into a studio with Miles, with, with going on there and make an album like Tutu, if you didn't have something? I opened up my imagination to a lot of stuff going on in England, especially Trevor Horn and Art of Noise and then sampling and the people that were like the electronic geniuses. Joe Zavano was a friend and paid attention to what all these guys were doing to create that. So I kind of didn't put those 10 years into play. Because there's not a lot, like you keep on saying, you know, well, you know, when did I first hear about Chick Corea? Well, really, it was about like 1968. But then Chick came to New York in 1959. 
So what happened during the nine years? I didn't know anything about really this guy, you know? Well, he was freaking paying dues, no matter what he was. Yes, he was up there, he was playing Mogwai. He was paying dues. You hear stories about how he met Steve Gadd. Well, he did a gig up in Rochester. Chuck Mangione wanted to know if he would play a gig up in Rochester. He drives up to Rochester. This is what you do when you're breaking in, no matter who you are. And I related to it until the time came when Michael Brecker started telling people about Jason Miles for real. You know, people knew me, but Michael was telling me, you really don't know this guy. He's the shit. And next thing you know, people are calling me because of just him understanding what I was doing. And Michael started really getting into it and everything. You know, he never took away from his tenor, but he also created a whole other side of himself with the Iwi as a master of that. And he understood, man, that to get that, you have to stand and get the work and constantly work and work and work and work. That's what I try to put together in the book, showing them just how complex it was to go and do. Then I morphed into like what it was like to go and make an album of Yvonne Linz's music and how it took me eight years to get a deal for this thing. And, you know, what I had to do after that. It's a whole thing. And, and it also relates to moving to Portugal because everything is compartmentalized. So when you make an album, it's like, well, I have to get the band first. Then we need the arrangements. Then we need this. Then we need that. You have to line everything up, right? So at the end, it's like, boom, here we are. And I wanted to explain that to people because I don't really believe that a lot of people really knew the process out there about how great music was really made and how I was so fortunate to be in there helping create this music. And then how I was able to take those lessons and morph into something else, which having to start from scratch again. You have to, have to start from scratch again in 1993 because, you know, Marcus Society wants to go to L.A. and nothing lasts forever. Yeah, Marcus Society wants to go to L.A. and start working on a solo career. We spent all, for eight years just in the studio. He wasn't playing around in a lot of places back then. Not He was in the studio all the time. Right. And so so you kind of see, you know, where, where, you know, where it's happening, where you have to take your life. And I tried to get people on the arc of my life up until now. I know it's a long answer to the question. But, that's, yeah. <laughs> but it's a good one. It's a good one. You self-published this. Did you try to pitch it to anyone? Forget it. Impossible. You know, you know, I'll say something. Miles Davis's wonderful lady friend, Joe Gelbart, who was with Miles for years, she encouraged me to do what I did. Because she keeps on reminding me about this guy. And there's a guy out there. His name is Jason Miles. And believe it or not, it's me. She was telling me, you know, I, go to, I go to Europe with Miles and, and we get police escorts and going around the place and everything. And all of a sudden, we'd be at this place and be honored here. And they're going, I, I don't understand what's going on. And Joe would go, you were Miles Davis. It's Miles Davis. Come on, because you're in the United States and they don't show you the same vibe, man. They don't, they don't show you the same vibe. So you go and you try to create what you can with the situation and turn yourself and be that person that people think. And so what happens, I went and I called in the troops because Joe said, write the book and send it to the journalists first. Send it to people that you know that will read the book. And, and, and then if they like it, tell them, could you give me a blurb? Can you do this? Well, I did that. And I got like Scott, Jeff Tamarkin did the editing, but he did something. What, so what happens is that they all came back and said, Jason, this is a freaking book, man. Because Ashley Kahn was the one that really got me going in the right direction by saying to me, but Jason, you got great stories, but you know what? You're not digging in there on some of the stuff, man, you know? And you got to realize this. You need an editor. Everybody needs an editor. You need somebody to go through that stuff and clean it all up and everything. Really, so I got Jeff to do it. And once he did it, all of a sudden I go, "This is like a real book." Wow, you know what I mean? Okay, all right, I got a real book here. And that's when I thought, you know, let's see what happens. So I went and I put it out there, and I said, "Look, I promise you, man, you're going to love this book. I promise you. And if you don't like it, I'll give you your money back." 
and I raised money to go and have the production of the book done. I autographed it personally to all these people and wrote them personal notes, sent it out, did not rape and pillage people for it. You know what I mean? Right. And I felt that self-publishing this thing was the way to go because if I was a book publisher, just like a record company, your record's out there. They love you. It's going great. All of a sudden, you know, they're three weeks later, oh, it's not doing so great. I'm taking it off the shelves on to the next. So you wanted to maintain control. Absolutely. And I wanted to also try to give it a future, which it still has, because now I'm here in Europe and I'm going to be going around bringing my book and doing some music conferences and stuff like that. And I'm going to do something here in Lisbon at the Jazz Messengers bookstore with Paolo Ochoa. It's a wonderful place, man. Oh, my God. What a record store this place is. All great vinyl. Wonderful. In a really cool place called LG Factory. It's like a little village inside of the city, and it's like streets, and all these boutique stores, and this bookstore is here on the bottom, and jazz messengers on top. So I'm going to do like a meet and greet and a little concert there, I think. And start off slow. Great venue. It's, oh, it's fantastic. And I'm going to start off slow, mm -hmm. and then see where we build from that and everything. But I'll bring my book around with me because everybody, I got to tell you, everybody that reads the book just gets back to me. Goes, man, I got to, you know, I got to give it up, man. You know, uh, this thing. Marcus Miller wrote the freaking forward to me. No matter what, they think the markers don't do that stuff all the time. So he came back and it was me. Oh, my God, Jay. Wow. You were right. I forgot about all of this stuff. Really? Because he's Marcus is in another headspace all the time. I enjoyed the book. It's warm. It's engaging. It's inside baseball for sure. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of wonderful stories. I, I tried to give everybody the truth. And I tried not to throw people under the bus. But I had to tell the truth on certain places because it's, it's my knowledge of verifying what happened. There's nothing there that's made up. Everything can be verified about what happened, especially in a couple of the chapters, that they just, this happened. This happened. People were there. They knew what was going on. I'm just telling you the story. I'm not using innuendo. I'm not using hearsay from anybody. So somebody goes, hey, I didn't say that. You know, he said that, you said that. that you know, none of that is in there. And believe me, there's a lot that could have been in there. I didn't try to throw anybody under the bus at all. And and you, know? you didn't. It's, it's very elegantly done, but it's true. What you wrote rings of the truth. And it's a wonderful document of a scene and a time and a place. Magic times. There, there, there was no doubt about it. Those years leading up to probably almost 2005 were magic times. Because the, the business after that just, and especially now after COVID, it's not the same at all. No. It's a totally different scene, which is what we're talking about before with the whole thing with the politics and the little groups and all this other stuff. It's consolidated to a place where an independent doesn't have the same opportunity as we had like maybe 20 years ago or whatever. How many record companies were there? You know, gee, I can tell you that I was turned down by 25 record companies. Now, how many you got? Four. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, so you kind of see what, you know, what, the, what, what the story is. And I look at myself and know that, yes, me and some of my friends talk all the time. But how fortunate it is. My friend Jimmy Graylauer, who's a great friend and producer and drummer, he did all this like stuff like Give Me a Higher Love, True Colors. He was the premier drum programmer. And, you know, he reinvented himself as a, as a mixer, spending time and time together because he knew, and we both knew, that this had to change. But we weren't going to be able to say the same. The phone stops ringing. You got to make the phone ring. And that's one thing that I always did. I worked hard to make the phone ring. And I went, had to go and go after stuff because it wasn't going to come to you. Not in the United States. No. Not in the United States. No. Well, the industry's changed so completely. What, what, what industry is left? I don't even know if there's an industry left. I mean, you know, how does a young artist, you know, make it these days? People should hope. I keep on saying, I have heard so many 
young artists that have got so much possibilities. And if we were in the system that we were still in years ago, no matter how much you hated record companies, no matter how much you hated that whole vibe and everything like that, there could be some bands out there right now, some musicians that may be able to be the ones that I'm talking about to lead the scene. But right now, just drifting away by yourself and not having uh, a consolidated effort by people to help you move along or to mentor you or something. Mentoring these days is like, you know, you can't tell anybody because you were mentored a different way because the business was different. Now you got to tell me, what do you do? You got to go and have the audience. You got to have social media and you got to have this and you got to do that. And you got to know that you're not going to get paid for the next five years. You know what I mean? Maybe. And, and it's not the same. I mean, I keep on saying this, that back then, I didn't know anybody that wasn't making a living. I mean, yes, it's always been tough. It's always been tough. There's no doubt about it. It's always been, it was tough for me for years. Always been tough. But there was always a possibility of really making a living in this. I always used to say this. The B guys in New York, the B guys in New York were making $100,000 a year because they get to spill over from the A guys who maybe maybe some huge record was out there. You know, uh, let's say, uh, you know, a Shaka Khan record or something like that. And, and Reef Martin books this guy for two months. Well, he's unavailable. So where did he go? Well, the next guy gets that other record to do because he's really good also. He does not, the A, the A guy. So that goes. And then what happens? And then those are the B guys. Their shit spills over to the C guys who are doing publishing demos, jingle demos, some jingle, some this, some that. And they're making like 50, 60,000 a year or something like that because everything was like trickled down. Right. But but, right. There, but there's no trickle down. So you want to say about whatever you want to say about record companies, but the record companies were making so much money that they were funding jazz record departments. Right. I mean, when Grover Washington Jr. tells me that Sony Music gave him a seven-record firm deal, okay, for like God knows how much money, you know what I mean? Ridiculous with tour support and everything. Well, I, I wanted to try to push that across in the book to say that, you know, like we got to make something different happen now. Because the way it is now, just few will profit and most won't. And I put it across just about, you know, yes, these were good times. we got to try to make those times again. And this is what it took me to go and get to there. Now, here I am in Portugal, the next portion of, of my life, to go and try to say, hey, yeah, this guy, Jason Miles, has got, still got a story to tell. And I want to tell it over here because I know you'll appreciate it. You know what happened to me in, in Lisbon here? There's an artist that so familiar in, in the United States have ever heard of him. You know, his name is Rui Veloso. Man, this guy is a uber talent. What a songwriter, man. What a storyteller he is. I don't even know what he's singing, but I love what he's singing. The Portuguese lyric, I mean, uh, beautiful, man. And his band, great guitar players. So my friend brought me over to his house that I met through the Dave Matthews band, this guy Thomas Mancini. I met him through my friend and Dave Matthews band, so Jeff Coffin. So anyway, Thomas takes me over to meet Rui. And, you know, he's huge. He sells out concerts everywhere here in Portugal. And I go... And I bring it to the house. And he looks at me, going to me, with me. This is a great honor for me. And I said, like, for what? He goes, for Jason Miles to be in my house. And I'm going, come on. He goes, I know your work. I've been following you for years. I bought albums, remember. I saw you, I started wondering, who is this guy that's on all these albums that's making this wonderful stuff? And here you are. I'm like, wow, that was so humbling. And it was sitting there just talking. And this guy's a superstar. I mean, he is like revered here in the highest level. So anyway, he invites us to his concert in Lisbon and I'm sitting in the audience and Kathy's just like, she's the first one at a concert that I think we need to go home. She hears some of the jazz guys playing. She goes, you got to get me out of here. So I I'm telling that, that's my barometer over there, the wife. I, you know, if she's not happy, I'm not happy. So anyway, so I'm there and all of a sudden he starts talking to the audience, talking to the audience and he goes, and I want to tell you, if he's out there, and I know he is, Jason Miles, I want you to stand up and say hi to everybody. 
because he's living in Lisbon now, and he's he's here. People were just clapping, and it was really just so humbling and beautiful. Saying, "Wow, that would never happen to me." You know what I mean? Where's the best place to find the extraordinary journey of Jason Miles, a musical biography? Amazon.com. It's so easy. Press the freaking button. They'll get it to you. It's on Kindle. It's on there. And the only thing I can say is that, you know, it's encouraged me to try to write another one. I need to sell a lot more books. I've done, we're doing okay for a, for, a, for a first book, you know. But the people that bought it and some of the people that contributed before that, my heart is open to them because they gave to me, man. And they gave to me and believed in me. And some of them didn't believe in me just buying the book. Some of them gave me like a lot more money than, than was this. Because you deserve it, man. I want to see what you got to say. And for those people, my heart is always open to you. And I'm always here for you. You know, because I believe in giving it back and I believe in reciprocity. I have a beautiful, wonderful wife that is I'm sharing this with, that we're working together, that we made it happen with. Just remember this. I, I always tell this to, me, to a musician. You're a musician. No matter what, live below your means. Live below your means because all the friends that I had that took $20,000 vacations at the Four Seasons and everything, you know, back when we make a ton of money, doesn't last forever. You got to have a plan. You got to have a plan that, that takes you through life and try to do the best you can. And when the curveballs come, you got to try to, you know, hit the curveball, which is hard. Yeah. Got to be willing to adapt. Got to be willing to change. Thank you, Jason Miles. Thank you for being on The Buzz. My name's Susan Brink, and you've been listening to the Jazz Journalist podcast, The Buzz. We release new episodes regularly on all the major platforms. To learn more about us, go to jjanews.org. This episode was edited by Wiz Petta. The John Michaels composition, Big Vic is our theme music. Toodaloo!